take our Bibles, if you would, please, and open them to Revelation chapter 22. And this evening I want to return to verses 6 through 11 in this chapter and conclude the message, Final Thoughts for Believers. The first part of this chapter, uh, verses 1 through 5, should have been a part of the previous chapter because it belongs with that description of heaven that we have in chapter 21. And then beginning in verse number 6 of chapter 22, we arrive at the epilogue of the book of Revelation. The messages to the churches of Asia have been given. The uh, tribulation is over at this point. The Antichrist has come and he's gone. The Lord Jesus has come in triumph. The millennial kingdom has been set up and now uh, that is gone. Uh, The judgment of the wicked has taken place. And so when all of that is settled, we come to these parting words in the book of Revelation. Now, if you'll notice further, these further words given to the apostle beginning in chapter, or verse number six, rather, it says, And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the thing which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book, worship God." And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. Now in our study of verses 6 through 11, we've looked at some important words that kind of help define this, this portion of Scripture. And the first one that we looked at was the accuracy, the accuracy of the prophecy. We're assured by an angel that what is written here can be believed, that these are the words of God. He says that these sayings are faithful and true. And as fantastic as all these things that we read are, the the scripture, the angel, God maintains that these sayings are true. And when you get into the middle of the book and you read about the great earthquakes and the meteor showers and great hailstones and demons that have stingers like scorpions, your imagination is tripped by that and suddenly you think you found yourself in a science fiction novel. And these are truly fantastic scenes, and that's because our sight is limited to the physical world. Now, although we do know that there is a spiritual world that is out there that surrounds us, we're unable to see it. We're not sure of what's there. And so when we're told about it, uh, the scenes just become overwhelming to us because we really don't have a frame of reference for it. And so we're naturally frightened by things that are supernatural. I think of the disciples the night that they were out on the sea and their storm arose and they were afraid and they looked up and they saw Jesus walking on the water. And you remember the scripture says they thought that they saw a ghost. And we're not talking about Casper the friendly ghost here. I mean, they were truly frightened by what they saw. They'd never seen anything like that before. And then I think about those maniacs of Gadara that were 
possessed with thousands of demons and they were terrorizing demons and they people were afraid to go near these two men because of uh, what they would do to them. Uh, They're they just terrible things that were happening and people just could not deal with that because it's a supernatural world. It's something you're not used to to, to seeing and, and that was powerful and it was harmful and so people were frightened by it. And then you think about angels that appeared to people in the Old Testament. People were afraid of them. And that's, again, because these things go beyond our senses and they're unknown to us. And because they are, there are people that read the book of Revelation and they automatically reject it. Because it's not a part of anything physical that we've seen. It's rejected. And if you can't explain it, then you reject it. But here we are assured that this is true. Every word that's spoken is an accurate word, and these things will come to pass exactly as God said that they would. And even John might not have been too sure about it at first, uh, and he might have thought that he did have some kind of a wild dream, and this is one of the reasons why the angel comes to him and assures him that all of this is real. So we have to get these things straight. Uh, Some have said that the book of Revelation doesn't even belong in the New Testament canon. It's so unusual, it's so difficult, it's so hard to find out. There's endless debate about it. There are hundreds of schemes of interpretation concerning it. But none of that diminishes the fact that this is truly the word of God and the sayings are faithful and true. So that that word, accuracy, we we see that in this passage. Then also the, the second word that we see here is the urgency, the urgency of Christ's return. And there are many scriptures in the Bible that indicate the coming of Christ is imminent and Christians in all ages have believed that Christ could come at any time. Uh, we don't try to set a date for it. Some do, but we don't. We don't try to set a date for it, and we don't look for any particular sign that has to happen. But we live every single day like it could be today. Today could be the day that Jesus comes back. And the Word of God encourages us to be ready for that. We're encouraged to, to live in the hope that Christ will return. And living in the hope of his return doesn't mean that we do things like go out every single day and stare out into the sky and see if it's going to open up and Christ is going to come. Neither does it mean that we pack up all of our belongings and go up on top of a mountain somewhere and look for Jesus to return. But living in the light of Christ's return means that we live lives that are cleaned up, that they're holy and they are moral. They're holy as God is holy. And as the Apostle John said in 1 John, he said, we need to be ready so that we won't be ashamed at Christ's coming. And so uh, we would have to ask then how many Christians are there that truly do believe that Jesus could come at any moment because there are so many Christians that don't live like he could come at any moment. If we truly expected that he could come now, I think it would change our lives a great deal and we would serve Christ better than we do. And then we're also told in these scriptures that when Christ comes that he will come quickly. Verse 7 says, Behold, I come quickly. And John was not to interpret that, that Jesus was going to come in a day, a week, a month, or a year. That's not what this means. It means that when it happens, when he does get here, that all of these events will start to unfold very rapidly. Now, it's been uh, 
several thousand years that the world has been in existence, 2,000 years since Christ was here. And uh, it just seems like we're just slowly plodding along, building up to the time that Christ will return. And so we might think that when he does come back, that we have many, many more years, processes to go through, and all of these things until we see the final consummation, so that when Christ does come, that the end is like a tortoise slow event that's going to happen but that's not what the word of God pictures here when Christ appears it starts to occur all of these events start to occur in rapid fire succession and and the the point of that is there's no time to get ready for this there's no time to prepare it comes as a thief the word of God says so it's surprising and allows no time for preparation all the preparations for Christ's return need to be made in advance And this is why we read and we study this book. We try to learn what it means because we do want to be prepared when Christ comes back. Now, a third word that we looked at is the word responsibility. And that's the responsibility for Christians. Now, first of all, we're told that there is a blessing for those that keep these sayings. And that means that Christians ought to be willing to obey God. We are his servants. He saved us for his purposes, not ours. The Word of God says that we are slaves to the righteousness of Christ. We're not to give in to the desires of the flesh. And so we're told to separate from the world and be a light to those that need to hear the gospel of Christ. But the problem with so many Christians is that we become a reproach to the name of Christ. Last week I mentioned David and how that he was approached by the uh, prophet Nathan. And David's a good indicator of how the actions of a few people can harm us all but Christians can become the laughing stock of the world because we're hypocritical in our confession and we 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 do everything we can or should do everything we can to present a good testimony before the world because the worse that we live the more that Christianity looks like it is vain and ridiculous and that's the thing that the prophet Nathan pointed out to David in, in his sin with Bathsheba and also the murder of Uriah. He caused the enemies of God to mock God. And this is what happens when Christians don't live as they should. If we're not the proper testimony, then we cause people to mock God. So what are we to do? Well, we're to take our place doing what God has saved us to do. John says, first, we are to worship God. And I might just add a note here about worshiping this angel. And we discussed a little bit about that last week, but I want to to kind of tack on to, to something that I said last week, that John fell down in front of this angel to worship him. And perhaps he did not intend that to be idolatrous worship. And there are some people that that take that view of this. He did not at all intend for it to be idolatrous worship. But whether it was or not, Uh, whether he intended to do it or not, we do find out from this scripture that doing such a thing is strictly forbidden. And I bring that up because there are many, such as in Roman Catholicism and in the Eastern Orthodox churches, that use icons and statues for worship. And they'll just tell you, we're not worshiping the statue, we're worshiping the God of the statue, we're worshiping the God of the saints, we're worshiping the God of the virgin, we're worshiping the God of the angels. Now, that is a very peculiar thing, that it would be okay to worship the symbol or to use the symbol, but not to worship the real thing. 
Here, John is told not to worship this angel. He's forbidden to do so. And if you can't worship the, 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 uh, this idol, this, this thing that represents the real thing, you can't worship that, then certainly we ought to understand that God does not want to, us to use idols in any way, shape, or form in our worship. And you can tell what people really believe about the value of a statue. If you were to walk into a Roman Catholic church and push over the statue of the Virgin Mary... What kind of reaction do you think that you would get? And, and I'm not suggesting that you would do such a thing. But let, let think about pictures of Jesus. Would you feel bad if you poked the eyes out of a picture of Jesus? Or if you drew Ray-Bans across his face? I mean, would you feel bad about that? Well, I actually think that most of us probably would be a little bit apprehensive about that. We'd be queasy about doing such a thing. And do you know Why? Because there's at least that little bit of feeling that it would be sacrilegious. And thus you have discovered the danger of idolatry. And that is why God says don't have any of that stuff. Because consciously or subconsciously we attach value to it. And whenever you do that, that thing becomes an idol to you. So here is the simple command that we're given. Worship God. Just worship God. Leave it at that. Don't worship an image of God. Don't worship anything that's made in heaven that's an image of something in heaven and earth. Worship God. And this is why the Israelites were never permitted to have an idol in the temple. They were told to simply worship God, not figures of God or anything else. Now, it's interesting also that when... Aaron made the golden calf to worship. Remember when, when Moses was on the mount and he was receiving the commandments from God? He came down from the mountain and there was Aaron and all the people worshiping around a golden calf. And it may have been that Aaron actually intended that that calf would be a representation of Jehovah God. Because the word of God says that he proclaimed that the next day would be a feast unto Jehovah. And what happened was the entire congregation of Israel came within a hairbreadth of being completely destroyed by God. So God says, don't do that. He says to obey him, and he says to worship. Then he also says to witness. We are to witness of these events. Seal not the sayings of this book. So we don't hide the news. We're, we're not to tuck it away because it is so fantastic. It's so unbelievable. Well, the unregenerate are not going to believe it, and so let's just do our best not to talk about it. Let's avoid looking like fools. And as I mentioned to you, sometimes I think that way when I'm preaching on these, these issues in Revelation. We have visitors come, and I don't know them, and I think, well, they're going to think this is really crazy stuff. This is crazy things they're talking about. But I can't worry about that. I don't worry about unbelievers in that sense. They may be curious, but they won't believe it until God himself opens their hearts to receive the truth of the scriptures. Then they believe. So I don't really worry about it. The Bible, uh, the Bible says, Paul said, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those that don't believe. So there's no topic that unbelievers are going to understand unless the Holy Spirit opens that and gives them guidance. Now that leads me then to the fourth and last observation that I'd like to make from these verses and what I've just said has bearing on this last point and number four the word we want to look at here is finality the finality of our condition verse 11 says he that is unjust let him be unjust still and he which is filthy let him be filthy still and he that is righteous let him be righteous still and he that is holy let him be holy still 
Now first I, I want to point out the unusual pattern of John's style of writing. And you should be familiar with this. Those of you that come to the Wednesday night Bible study where we were studying 1 John, that John often makes his points in contrast. There's the light and the darkness contrast. There's righteousness and unrighteousness. That's a contrast, the false and the true. And we see that very same style here in verse number 11. Now, we notice that there are contrasts in the first and third clauses and then in the second and the fourth. Now, the first clause says, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And the third clause, He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. So there's your first contrast. The second one begins in the second clause. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And then in the fourth, He that is holy, let him be holy still. And so there's this contrast. The first and the third is evil versus righteousness, righteousness versus unrighteousness. And then in the second... And the fourth, it's filthiness versus holiness. And so those are usual contrasts that John uses. And the first one would be about a person's deeds. And we know how that John relates that to the keeping of commandments. Then the second is about a person's character. And that's the indication of the condition of his heart. Now the important point that I want to give you here tonight on this is once we reach this particular place in Revelation, once we've gone through all the things that are settled here, each person's condition is fixed and it's final. So that those that are confirmed in holiness will be forever that way and those that are confirmed in unbelief will also be forever that way. Now let me make a couple of observations about that and then we'll conclude our study of these particular verses. First observation is that death cannot change you. Death cannot change you. Now God has given every conceivable warning in this book of what it's going to be like for unbelievers. And the Bible has a lot to say about this. We noted when we were studying chapter 20 that Jesus is one of the strongest supporters of the doctrine of hell. In fact, Jesus touched on that subject more than any other person in Scripture. He gives us the clearest point-blank statements that could be made on the subject of hell. And God has even gone far enough to include these fantastic images that we find here in the book of Revelation to impress people with the danger of dying without Christ as Savior. And all of these warnings are given to show us that something must be done now. It has to be done before the person leaves this life because what you are now or what you are at the point of death is what you are going to be forever. So if we take the negative side of that first, if a person is an unbeliever at death, then that will be his final state. In fact, in the Greek language, there's more than meets the eye than what we see here in the English translation of this. It says, he that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And the actual rendering of that in the original language is indicative of a continuing, worsening condition. So the lost are not in a static condition. Instead, their hatred and their rebellion against him grow worse and worse. Uh, We would think that just five minutes after a person is in hell that he would start trying to figure a way to get out of the place and it would seem that the best way to get out is to repent, to show some remorse, to tell God that he's sorry and do the best they could to clean up their act. But that's not the way that hell is. 
People in hell don't remain the same and they don't get better. They continue to get worse in their defiance of God. And in hell, it becomes worse than ever before. And the reason it is because they have the character of Satan. They have the very same obstinacy that Satan has. Now, you remember as we were studying this, we talked about how that Satan would be loosed at the end of the millennial reign. He's been kept in the, in the, in the bottomless pit, and there he's in that, in that place of, of uh, torturous, uh, I believe there, that he's, that he's actually in hell fire there for that 1,000 years. And at the end of that 1,000 years, he's released for a short period of time. What do you think that Satan would do? You'd think, I'm not going back to that place again. There's, there's no way that I'm going to risk that again, so I'll clean up my act and I'll do what's right. But that's not what Satan does. Immediately, the word of God says he goes out to deceive the nations once again. That's just the way that he is. He doesn't change. If people could get out of hell, folks, there is 100% recidivism. They would go right back there because that's where they would want to be. I mean, that's where the, the end product is always going to be that. So there's no rehabilitation in hell. Satan comes out with a vengeance. He's doubly determined to overthrow God, and people in hell would do exactly the same thing. This is the way that they react. They are of their father, the devil, and his works they will do. So they get worse and worse. They get greater and greater in their defiance. They cry out continually against God. And the interesting thing about that is, is that God's already forgotten them. We wanted to put it in our terms, uh, God is out of earshot. And so they cry out and those, those cries go out into the empty, emptiness of space, never to be heard. Now there's another important point that needs to be made here about unbelievers. And that is the sense that the continuing obstinacy against God in this life is neither a static condition the more that people hear the gospel of Christ and the more often that they reject it, the more they turn their backs on that gospel when they hear it, the harder and harder their hearts become. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And so if a person continues to reject the gospel, he can become so hardened in that unbelief that God stops all influence. He will not call that person to repentance. A good case in point would be what we read in the story of Noah. God gave Noah 120 years to preach repentance to those people. He said, God set a time limit on He said this, just Genesis 6, 3. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also also his flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. And the result of this continual mocking of Noah is that people just kept saying, Today is just like yesterday. Tomorrow is going to be just like today. Noah, you are a fool for building a boat and telling us to repent. And so what happened? Well, they kept getting worse and worse until God said, no more. I'm not taking this anymore. And so he sent the flood to destroy the world. And just before the flood came, he had Noah and his family go into the ark, and then God shut the door. And folks, as the waters were rising, and these people could see what was happening, God did not tell Noah, you can open the door and let anybody in. It was too late. They had done past the time. See, there, there comes a time when people keep rejecting and rejecting that God says, enough. 
Sometimes we call that sending away the day of grace. And folks, that is a reality. God stops calling the persistent unrepentant. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? Now notice there, the gospel becomes a savor of death unto death for those that refuse to believe it. A great illustration of that was when the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. Now, they weren't believers, but they knew that God had power. They thought that there was power in the Ark. They didn't understand the, 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 what God was doing with the Ark of the Covenant. They weren't believers, so they captured that, and they took it into their camp. But not being believers, the ark became an instrument of death to them. God smote them with some pretty impressive afflictions, if you want to read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 5. So you see the condition of the lost is not static. The unbeliever gets harder and harder in that unbelief. And so the gospel itself can actually become a means of hardening people to it. It accelerates their unbelief. And it increases their responsibility and at the same time increases their punishment for their rejection. And I want to read something to you that uh, S. Lewis Johnson said. I thought it was quite good on this subject. But he gave an illustration of this particular point. Um, some of you, I suppose most of you probably know who Aaron Burr was. Everybody know who Aaron Burr was? Well, if you don't, Aaron Burr was the guy who killed Alexander Hamilton in the duel back in the beginning of the United States. So this is a, a little bit of a story about Aaron Burr. He says, Aaron Burr was one of the most brilliant men ever produced in the United States. He was a brilliant student at Princeton University, and for over a 100 years, the academic record that Aaron Burr had was the record of that great institution. About 20 years ago, I went to the campus of Princeton for a series of meetings, and while I was there, there was a young man by the name of Bill Rush. He was in the Princeton Evangelical Fellowship. And by the way, those of you who don't know, uh, Princeton University was started as a, a great university for the teaching of the Word of God, and some of the greatest minds came out of Princeton, and uh, greatest theologians came out of Princeton. Jonathan Edwards was a president of Princeton, and then you have many others in the late uh, um, 18th century, 19th century, rather, several of those that really some of the strong stalwarts of, the, of theologians that we follow today. But just to go on here, it says, and the talk among the evangelicals and among their friends was that finally someone on the campus of Princeton had a chance to beat the academic record of Aaron Burr. This was back in about 1955 or 56. Mr. Burr had died around 1840, as I remember, maybe a few years before that. So he was a brilliant man whose record was unusual. When he was on the campus of Princeton, a revival broke out, and he was deeply convicted of sin. His roommate was a Christian, and his roommate urged him to accept Christ. He went to one of his professors, and one of his professors gave him a Bible, and he said to him, Aaron, take this to your room and settle the matter on your knees. Instead of doing that, he tried to shake off the power of the Holy Spirit and the testimony to Christ, and finally, in desperation, as he said later, he cried out, Oh God, let me alone, and I will let you alone. And he said as soon as he said that, all conviction of sin left him. Many years later, he met a friend whom he admired very much, and his friend said, Dr. Burr, I'd like you to meet a friend of mine. 
And he said, any friend of yours, this is what Burr said, any friend of yours, I'd like to meet too. And his friend said to him, I'd like for you to meet Jesus Christ. And when he said that, the cold sweat, perspiration we say, the cold perspiration popped out on his forehead. And he told how at the age of 19, he said his prayer in which he addressed to God, God, let me alone and I'll let you alone. And then he said to his friend, from that day to this, I never had one desire to become a Christian. Now that's an example of how people can reject Christ and they do it over and over and over again. And finally, God simply gives them over to judgment. And let me add just another piece of information to this, something that I didn't know when I was researching this a little bit uh, afterwards, is that I found out that Aaron Burr was the grandson of Jonathan Edwards. Now, do you think that he didn't know what his grandfather preached? Now, Jonathan Edwards died about two years after Aaron Burr was born, but you don't think he knew the legacy of Jonathan Edwards? This is his grandfather, the greatest revival preacher in the history of America. There were more people saved under the preaching of Jonathan Edwards in the, in the First Great Awakening than the, the, we've ever seen in America. I mean, true conversions. So you think that he didn't know about that? J.A. Seiss said, There is always a twofold effect from the preaching of the divine word. It is quick and powerful and never leaves men where it finds them. It either makes them better or it makes them worse. If it does not absolve, it the more condemns. If it does not soften to penitence, it hardens to iniquity. If it is not a savor of life unto life, it is a savor of death unto death. And unfortunately for the great masses of its hearers, it is an instrument of damnation rather than salvation. Now do you think that people ought not to be made aware of this? That when you sit under the preaching of the gospel of Christ and do not believe it, that your condemnation is far, far worse from having heard it than not having heard it. And so as the word of God says, it becomes a savor of death unto death. So that's frightening. It's scary to sit under the preaching of the gospel and go away without believing it. Now, if you want to know about human responsibility and salvation, we believe that too. And we believe that God commands people to repent and that they persist in not doing so. Then God can take away all opportunities and that person's condition becomes worse and worse. Now, on the other side of that, we have the Christian. And a Christian is not static either. And the meaning that we have in this scripture is that those that are saved will keep on growing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. Now, I actually have a hard time processing that because I don't know how it's possible for someone to be more perfect than perfect. When you get to heaven, you're going to be perfect. So how are you going to keep growing in the the grace of Jesus Christ and in the knowledge of him and become more perfect? I don't know how you do it, but evidently you do. Some way you do. Because the word teaches us that we keep growing in our love for God. That's, we're, we're just learning all the time that we're in heaven about the great God that we serve. Now finally, I think it's important to make this last point. That death cannot change you, which logically implies there are no second chances. The state of a believer is fixed at death and there is never another opportunity to believe. Now actually... The Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory is built on the premise of second chances. 
Now, it's refined somewhat, but it's built on misinterpretation of Scripture and invention of Scripture. But one of the Scriptures that's misinterpreted on this is 1 Peter chapter 3, where Peter says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. Now, if you'll notice there, verse number uh, 19, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits and prison, in prison. And that is used by some people to say that Jesus went to hell and that he preached the gospel and gave people in hell a second chance to believe. And that idea that Christ went to hell during those three days that he was in the tomb for any reason whatsoever is simply a pure fabrication But that is the basis for the doctrine of limbo and and for the doctrine of purgatory. And so there are some that still insist on this, that a purging takes place after death. That the sins of people require at least a modicum of suffering, if not more than that. And so they can be purged from their sins when they leave this life, and so then they can enter into heaven. Now, let me just say, that is all make-believe. That is a, and really it was invented as a money-making scheme, and folks, it's a sorry lie. And that has enriched Roman Catholicism by this doctrine of purgatory. But verse number 11 in this text here in Revelation shows us that the state is fixed at death. There is no change after death. So obedience and disobedience are fixed. Righteousness and unrighteousness are fixed. It doesn't change. And nobody has a second chance to change from one to the other. So the redeemed don't change, and neither do the lost. And as bad as it is for those that don't know Christ, they don't want to change. They don't want to. They don't love God. They do not want to bow to God. They won't do it, and neither can they. And here again, bringing this all back around again, this is why there is so much stress laid on the second coming. You see, if there was a possibility that you could change your state after death or after the second coming of Christ, if that could be switched, then we would never have to have any concern, really, about uh, making the proper preparations for Christ's return. But do you feel, as you read this, a sense of urgency in these scriptures? As one author said, these last verses of Revelation are heightened anticipation. You have to feel the urgency in this. There's a rapid fire close to these events. And every verse that you read here just heightens that awareness of the importance of these events. And the idea that we have here presented in Scripture is that something must be done. And that something must be done right now. Because it may be too late if you wait. Christ is coming And there's going to be what you could call an instant freeze. That what you are is what you are. You will not change. You know, some time ago I I talked about the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in AD 79. And when that volcano erupted, in a split second, it showered the entire city of Pompeii with, with, with ash. And people were, were just instantly covered with that ash, and that ash hardened just as quickly as it came down. It cooled off and hardened. So when they uncovered the, the, the city of Pompeii hundreds of years later, they found people like this, and people sleeping, and people you know running and trying to get away. And that's because just instantly, 
Whatever they were doing was the state that they were in, and those and those bodies were encrusted in that ash. And they and they, of course, the bodies had long since decomposed, but the form, the outlines of them, were there, frozen in time. And that's the way this chapter unfolds. It's with that sense of urgency that whatever you are, when Christ returns, that's what you will be, and there will not be a chance to change anything. So here is a frightening warning for unbelievers. But at the same time, we find here a blessed hope for believers. The unjust will stay unjust, but the righteous will stay righteous. And so that means that once, once we die or when Christ comes again, that when we leave this life, that there is no possibility that that state of the righteous is ever going to change. We never have to worry about losing this eternal life that we have in Jesus Christ. It's there forever and forever. It, it, is a, it is an ongoing condition for every one of us that is a believer in Christ. So you have on one hand, you have the lost, and they're going to stay unrighteous. No chance that they could ever escape the fires of hell once they go there. And then for the redeemed, we have fixed forever our state of eternal life. So the question here for all of us is when you're frozen in time, which direction are you going to be headed? You know, that's not only worth thinking about, folks. You are insane if you don't think about it. You are insane if you don't think about it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the truths that we learn here. And I pray, Lord, that you would really impress it upon us, the importance of understanding that when Christ comes back, that we need to be prepared. We need to know you as Savior. We need to be convinced of that. And we need to let the world know, let people around us be aware of, of, of the awfulness of dying without Jesus Christ. May we be a church that preaches that message and also one that lives in the expectancy of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Bless us, Lord. Thank you for your people that are here and uh, for the opportunity to preach your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.